Welcome back to Half Baked Deep Fry. What's up, Alton? How you feeling? Not much, my man. What's good? What's good, man? It's been a crazy world out there in these streets, huh? Crazy days. I mean, I feel like, I mean, do you think what we saw on the 6th, which I guess is going to go down, I don't know, some people are calling it the crazy tailgating party, but I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night you know, I'm in California, so I'm a little bit behind. But, you know, you wake up early here, you get the big news that uh, not only did Warnock win, Ossoff won too. And I was like, whoa, we took back the Senate. And then, next thing you know, we have a white nationalist tailgating party at the I know, that was like Capitol. a, I know that was about a two-hour news cycle, right? Then we got to celebrate the win <laughs> in, in Georgia <laughs> until they had this, uh, you know, huge tailgating event. What the hell's going on? The white revenge party? I know, right? It's, uh, uh, I mean, I spent all morning debating with like minds about whether or not it's actually a coup. So it seems like the popular lingo in the media wants to be to call this a coup, but I'm like, this wasn't a coup. Thank God it wasn't a coup, but it wasn't. We have a little debate going on on my Facebook group. Two of my academic friends I went to Columbia with have taken strongly opposing sides. One, Erica De Bruin, who's a political scientist at Hamilton College, has written a piece both in the Washington Post and the New York Times explaining from a strictly political science perspective, this was not a coup. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's my point. She says it's very clear why it was not a coup because Trump seems to have made no effort uh, to to come to retain power by by mobilizing either the regular officer corps or the regular regular army. And so there was no attempt for at this moment to mobilize the armed forces. And therefore she says definitionally it's not a coup. Yeah. But I mean I agree I, I agree with that a thousand percent. I also don't think he actually tried to main I don't think he tried to maintain power at all, to be honest. I don't think that's what it was well, about. I think that, that's what that part seems to be a bit murky. What? Because, so there's been these reports coming out that actually, this part seems crazy, but actually as they were storming the Capitol, Trump and Giuliani were calling senators, but they were calling the wrong senators. I saw that. I saw that as well, that they got the wrong office and people weren't answering them. And uh, there's a debate of whether or not, you know, calling them while this is happening, does that make it a coup? You know, I still don't think that makes it a coup. I mean, sorry. Um, I don't think it was a coup. And then the other, the other assertion, though, and I don't know what what credence to give to this, is that perhaps the rioters, insurrectionists, I guess we're calling them, uh, were attempting to burn the ballots, and therefore attempting to cause some kind of commotion in the formal, or maybe they wanted to steal the ballots. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like. like as one of our friends said, it's uh, it might have been a sub- symbolic coup. That's, you know, in that sense, like, you know, showing that we resisted in some very hollow sense. But, like, the actual act of attempting to retain power in that moment doesn't seem actual. I mean, because nothing they did could have actually resulted in that end. Like, n- all of it was completely ineffectual. Well, you're a big football fan, right? I mean... Isn't this a classic thing that you do? Like, you know, your team maybe loses the football game and then you steal the other team's mascot? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But is that, is that a coup? That's not fixing the game. 
A coup is when you have the referee to call a touchdown, not a touchdown, and then you walk the ball down the field. That's a coup. That's not what happened today. So I think he was. I think Trump maybe wanted to do something like that, right? I mean, we got the long telephone call with. Uh, oh, I think I think he Secretary wanted to, State but that's Georgia. Yeah, sure. I mean, he definitely wanted to. He tried, but not in that moment. The insurrection and Trump's very lackluster coup attempts need to be separated. Are, are they connected? Do Trump certainly? Yeah, yeah. I don't think. But are they the same thing? No. The last. Like, did he attempt a coup? Yes, but it was before this. <laughs> I guess. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not like he didn't try it. I mean, he tried to steal the election. He he tried very ineffectually to steal the election, and very late. Like it, it seems like he didn't start. He didn't start calling people till after the election. Like while the like you think if you're going to do a real coup, you would set it up before the election, before the event, so you can affect the vote tally. Right? That's how you do this. But that's not what they did. Um, they were calling people afterwards to try to fix the things. In post, which is super confusing and not how a coup works at all. Even if you're trying to, you know, say it's some sort of, uh, you know, academic coup or you know, soft coup or whatever the term is. I think I think the one good thing about Trump is that he's always been very clear. He like tells you exactly what he's trying to do, right? So I think in the speech he gave, he was like, "Look, you know, if we show a little bit of force, maybe the guys will come to our side." You know, maybe we can extend the vote. Maybe we can get more Republicans to object to the ballots. I don't think it was too sophisticated. The idea was that, you know, my supporters are going to go into the Capitol and then Trump and Giuliani were going to call Republican senators and be like, hey, you guys should object to ballots. You should, you know, do the same thing that they were trying to do with Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. And so it wasn't a coup as much as what we might call lawfare, right? They were trying to extend Mm -hmm. the procedures, bend the rules... Uh, they were trying to do like like what do you call it when the game is when you're down like six points and you have like 20 seconds left on the shot clock on the on the game clock and you try to like pull four plays you know you're like by doing these four different maneuvers we might be able to still win this game you know it was some last minute uh, point scoring I think the bigger question is like where do we go from here and like what does this mean for American politics I mean, part of me is like, my uncle, I was talking to my uncle, who's a lawyer, and he was like, we were chatting about it, and then he just started sending me some photos about uh, lynchings. And he was like, you remember, white terror has always had this kind of carnivalesque aspect to it, right? I mean, back in the day, lynchings were, were picnics and parties. And that, you know, maybe Trump is drawing, in some ways, I mean, these guys have always been drawing on the kind of white terror that we had at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century in this country, right? This kind of carnivalesque aspect. Sure, but I think that's reaching too. I mean, you know, I, I, I respect the position, Trevor, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily the case. Lynchings were a very real thing and they were picnics and parties and sometimes like town-wide gatherings. That's, you know, all that's true. You know, unifying and I agree there's a, a parallel here. You know, it's, it's somehow given this base, they're, they're meat to chew, right? Like, you know, if you're going to keep these people, you have to give them something. Um, but it, it wasn't that he was going to keep power. It was that he's their guy, right? I guess that's the yeah, main he's thing. he's their guy. It's that the, the point that they were making was that, look, I'm still your guy. 
And I need to make this clear. It was an internal GOP power struggle. I mean, you saw whose office they broke into? Mitch McConnell's. They, they vandalized his house. I mean, they, it clearly was a message to him in that branch of the party that if you stand yeah, and if you stand against me, that we're coming. Like, we're still here, and I'm not going anywhere. Though they might not even be with Trump, because lately they've been calling him a coward since he had to give his little three-minute speech. I think they're just trying to say that we're here. We're out here. We are the party. And, you know, I mean... I don't know if you saw, but, you know, they just had the RNC elections, and Ronna McDaniel won again. So she's going to be the RNC chair, and she's Trump's... She's back. And she's Trump's... Girl. She's Trump's dog. So that's a very strong sign that he's not going anywhere. And you know he has no intention of going anywhere. I don't think he's going anywhere. I mean, he's, I think he's still... I don't think he's going anywhere. If you have to assume who's going to run in 2024, it's going to be Trump, unless something happens. Yeah. I mean, let's hope that it's Trump. Because he's a fucking clown. And then... And I think, like... I mean, these people are also people who follow in the lost cause, right? I mean, we still got Southerners that think the Confederacy is rising again. And they were marching with the Confederate flag. So defeat has never been a problem for them. Yeah, I mean, they had the Confederate flag. They had the Nazi flag out there. They, they had all their little trinkets. Yeah, so they're not worried. I mean, so in some ways, right, this is not, this is not a group of people that, you know, defeat is really a problem for right i mean these are people who want martyrs right these are people who believe in long suffering and that they're this the disavowed of the earth even though they're also the wealthy dudes who are like bankers and like real estate agents or owners of major um supermarket chains in the state of louisiana you know i'm just saying you know these people yeah yeah these like these people right i mean I saw my boy I went to prep school out with, another one of them out there, talking all this stuff, saying maybe it was Antifa. Oh, maybe people that were upset about their storming of the Capitol building were hypocrites. And I'm like, what do you do? He's like a major, he owns like a part supplier for General Motors. And you're like, who are these people? And why are they so aggrieved? And what's this whole thing about the country being taken from them? But I agree with you. I mean, they were definitely showing personal loyalty to Trump because, I mean, why else would you play Elton John's The Candle Blew Out Long Ago (laughs) right before you start storming (laughs) Capitol? You know what I mean? It's kind of like... Well, I think the strongest one is uh, my my heart... Funeral. My heart will go on. You know? Oh, yeah, my heart will go on, right? So they're preparing the next lost cause, right? They're going to say that Trump was a lost cause. He was undermined by the deep state the ring of pedophiles and lizards, you know, did him in, betrayal, Mitch McConnell's a traitor, Lindsey Graham is a rhino, you know, the whole shenanigans. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are going to be our next champions. But you think Ted Cruz will emerge from this? Like this is going to do him any favors? Oh, so that's something we should probably talk about. So I think, so Holly and Cruz did something that's kind of surprising to me. So these are both very bright guys, Harvard educated, lawyers, like no one has ever doubted their intellectual capabilities, but they both kind of showed their ass, as we would say in our community this week, because 
they went all in on this deal that they both kind of made in 2010 with the Tea Party. That's the part that people aren't really talking about. The fact that the Tea Party has really turned into something else within the party. This fairly violent conspiracy theory, QAnon, white nationalist fringe part of the party that seems very important in order to get elected. And both of these guys have an eye on, they both want to be president, Holly and Cruz, both of them. We know that for a fact. And Cruz, yeah, finished, sure. and Cruz finished second last time in Republican primary. He was like, he, people consolidated around him. The reason he couldn't get past Trump is Trump had this 30%, you know, of them. It was like 60% of the Republican Party, we found out, that was not budging. They were with Trump no matter what he did. They weren't going anywhere. So he feels that in order for him to, to be the man next time, he needs to show them some loyalty too. Like you were saying, Trump gave them the meat, but then they jumped on the bandwagon, right? But the problem for them is their brand is different. Trump was a non-politician. He was this like businessman that was known to like shake things up, right? For them, it's like you guys are lifelong politicians. What you're really showing is that you like kind of lack some seriousness and some maturity that's required and that we kind of expect of people. Like you're, you know, like you're a senator. You're not allowed to behave like this. You're not this. You're not the same as Trump. So I think in a lot of ways they showed. I mean, especially the seriousness point that they're not suited. For these, for these higher roles. Because, I mean, how could they not see that this was going to be the obvious, obvious result of stoking all of these uh, people and, and fears and, and throwing gasoline on this fire? I mean, I think... I mean, because maybe... It's just one more thing, because, you know, I'm let you respond. Because even if you think there is a debate, because maybe there is a real debate to be had about different states and different voting procedures and, and how it was going down and whether or not we need to do some better review. You know, maybe there are some things there that need to be discussed. I mean, I, I don't think that's a closed discussion. But how can you both say that and then go with the guy with the horns on his head and the skirt? Like, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Great. I mean, Josh Hawley was up there with the uh, closed fist thinking this was a black power rally, except for it was a white power rally. And I mean, so I don't know. I mean, do you think that they were surprised? Or do you think that they actually thought this was a great idea? This was all made for TV. And there's this whole new conservative ecosystem out there. D-Live. They're all trying to build their own platforms. This was a big streaming event for them. But honestly, I don't think they thought there would be any consequences. I think they kind of just thought they could do this yeah but also they didn't so they thought they just had so many faults in their logic though they thought they could be the guy on that far right nationalist side that was somehow going to steal trump's base that was never going to happen you're not stealing trump's base like cult cult members are only loyal to the cult leader so that's the first thing you got to say about that so they were they were never going to jump and then they you're still going to get hit from the right like so people like mo brooks are coming out and saying well that wasn't even us that was antifa which we know was not true but so even when they try to go there they're still going to get outflanked by crazies like him and so where do they so they're stuck in the middle you know they're still stuck clowns to the left me jokers to the right they're stuck in the middle still because that's who the fuck they are and so i what i thought was most interesting is your boy of all people was the smartest white nationalist in the room Tom, Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton. He oh, yeah. wrote, Tom was like, you're not going to see me out here with my ass. He wrote a whole op-ed about it. He was like, this was a stupid shit. That's, you got to believe in the system, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and so it's interesting to see how like they're all fighting in different ways for this section of 
what, what they consider important, right? They, I mean, it's, I think it's complete. It's the core segment of the Republican Party. I mean, Tom Cotton, you're right. Tom Cotton, we might look back in four years and realize that this was his Obama's Iraq war speech. You know, this is the moment in which you took a half step that separates yourself from the pack. And it turns out this was, you know, depending on how it plays out, if Trump is not the man in four years, this could be Tom maybe put himself in pole position. Well, he's smart enough to understand that politics are about are always about power. That's the most important thing. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest guy in the room and this or that. And you don't chase the votes. It's about looking strong. And so he understood that he couldn't look strong by being Trump's flunky. But they somehow thought they could be, which is kind of a weird conclusion, right? For them to think, you know, we can be strong by being his flunkies. Um, I, I think it's going to bite them. lost that, fa- that fight a while ago. I mean, Josh, I guess Hawley, to his credit or discredit, decided to own the issue, right? He got out there first. He got out there with the fist up, you know. If something were to happen to the dear leader, then I guess Josh is like, I'm the dear leader's best oculite in the Senate. But you're right. Because if we're doing the whole dear leader thing, then do we need a senator? I mean, we could just take Don Jr. and run the whole shiggle wiggle with it. You know what I mean? Or some... Or some well, podcast. honestly, that's probably... I don't even know about that's probably who they should have had out there, some random podcaster or some random YouTube star. Like, it's, it's unclear yeah, yeah. Why, why they felt they needed to be the ones in the streets. I don't know. Well, they want... I mean, Josh, Josh clearly wants to, like, take over the movement, right? I mean, he's trying to say, I can be the senator from Missouri and also the leader of the... Well, yeah, he thought he could. He could appeal. He thought he could, yeah, appeal to the country club Republicans and to the nutter butters, as you call them. And and he's doing the other thing, right? He also came out with Bernie and said, "I want to give everybody two thousand dollars." So he's trying to triangulate, right? He's trying to build this new base of disaffected Bernie Bros, white nationalists, and then still be like, "Hey, I'm the corporate face. You know, I'm the guy that McDonald's can talk to." so that their stores don't get burned down. Yeah, but don't forget, he did that after Trump pivoted to, to give the $2,000 out. So it's still no, following I think he Trump. came first. Did he? Yeah, yeah, I think he came first, and then Trump agreed with him. All right, so there's a little bit of a debate. He says that he was in dialogue with Trump about the $2,000. So maybe you're right. Maybe he, he's claiming that he got some permission from Trump to do this. But I, Or maybe Josh thinks that he can become one of the leaders of the Republican caucus in the Senate. You know, finally break the stronghold of Mitch and the... Oh, maybe. Which, though, that does remind me of something I saw earlier that was kind of interesting. You saw Biden talking about my boy? So I think we were right. They, they, they've been talking a lot. So he said, basically, he was talking about um, oh, labor secretary. The labor secretary? Yeah, and he said, I wanted to give it to him. He'd probably be the best person for the job, but I need my boy in the Senate. Like he's like we can't we can't risk a special election in Vermont of all places right now. Don't forget that used to be a Republican seat. So who knows? Who knows? Well, for two years, right? I mean, Biden has about two years, I think, before or maybe a year, because in a year's time it's going to be the preparation for the midterm elections. And he just got the Senate, and he needs to go gangbusters. You know, what I mean, he needs to push everything that he can imagine any any idea that dems have 
Dems are dim-aligned think tanks progressive groups have ever had on the shelf. Biden needs to put those bad boys through. I agree. Because you see Every, everyone. Everyone. Every one of them, right? Just slam as much as you can fit into the legislative calendar. And then, I mean, because you see the economy is beginning to crater. Like, whatever stimulus, tra- entrails of the stimulus, yeah, it's not doing well. The unemployment is taking a dip again. The stock market is at record highs. Unemployment is going down, and it seems like it's going to trend down throughout the rest of the winter. And so the situation is not good. People are broke. Things are getting more expensive, and people are broke. And it's the worst of all combinations, right? When you have high unemployment, and the prices are getting higher for everything that you might want to buy. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're right, right? On one hand, for those people who've been investing in the market, who've been playing a little Bitcoin, I mean, every ICO is going gangbusters out here, right? Uh, we got these things called SPACs, these special purpose access, whatever things where, where you just go in the market and you just say, hey, why don't I take $500 million and then I might think about buying something with it? And you're like, what? Like, is that really a thing? I mean, there's clearly a lot of cash floating around out there, but then nobody has any money. And so we're in a difficult situation that I think Biden has a very short window to get into. Yeah, but thankfully he seems to have shown a lot of will to do that. I think he actually is, wants to come out swinging. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of... The thing that frustrates me, honestly, though, is as a progressive, I know you like to, you know, is I want all of those things to go through, but I actually might think they're not necessarily the most important. The economic things might not be the most important things for the Dems to do right now. I hate to say it. I, I think the most important things might be structural issues. Like, one... D.C., Puerto Rico, statehood, just do it. Quit, quit effing around, do it. Put, put that on them and see how they can deal with that. That's a serious piece of pressure that they would, <laughs> I don't know how they react to that. It would be great. And uh, talk about term limits for judges. I think these are serious, serious things we need to address. I mean, that would go a long way to fixing the Senate. Which part? If we gave D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. Yes. Correct. And then I guess, in some ways, you're right. I mean, doing that, I guess you're laying the groundwork to not have this, like, rush, right? To not have this fear that things could go backwards in the midterms in 2020. 2022. Because I guess that's McConnell's play, right? McConnell is trying to play possum right now. Uh, hoping that he can get things to come back around in 2022. Yeah, I agree, but, the, you know, we don't, who knows if McConnell will last until then. Uh, the, that's true. I mean, that's one of the exciting things is whether or not actually McConnell's days are done. But that, I don't know if that's a good thing for us, I guess is what I'm saying. I think that's, once again, to go back to my theory of the case, I think that's what you're seeing is the final struggle for the, the face of the party. Like, what if, what if the next McConnell is Holly? Yeah, Holly. Exactly. Or, I guess what you're saying, the next McConnell might be Cotton. Possible. Or someone like that, right? Because mm-hmm. I guess that's the question. Because I don't think Cotton will ever be nationally viable. He's too racist, a little too... Like, I don't think he, he can quite... He's done some other weird, goofy things in the past, too, that I think are going to hurt him too much. But I think he could easily be a McConnell. 
You know, he could easily be Senate Majority Leader. Yes. And I guess that's in some ways scarier because he could be doing that for another 20, 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As we've seen, it's a far more consequential position, you know, mm. in some ways. And he understands power, and he's an out-and-out segregationist. Yes. And maybe he's not even segregationist. Maybe he's like, when he talks about this stuff, he's not, he doesn't even seem to be reminiscing about Jim Crow. He seems to be reminiscing about the pre-Civil War period. Yeah, he's 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 about that life. He he remember he remembers a kinder, gentler time. A time when we were all genteel, right? <laughs> when everyone knew their place, as they say. Um, when every man when every man had a job. That's the kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, every to man say. had a job, right? Isn't that what the Bundys have been saying out there on their little ranch? No one was homeless. Like, no one was homeless, right? Everybody had a place on the plantation. Right? It's crazy. I I thought the most interesting speech, my favorite speech, was actually Lindsey Graham's uh, Long Ramble. I didn't listen to that. Oh, it was hilarious. So first, Lindsey gets up there and he's like, I'm so proud to represent South Carolina. My colleague, Tim Scott, you know, his presence here is one of the proudest things in my career. And then he was like, I just want to give everybody a history lesson. It was like, many people here are saying this is unprecedented. But it's not unprecedented to have two slates of electors come to the Senate. He was like, it happened once before, in 1876. We all know what happened then. Uh, You know, the compromises that were set, the Senate Majority Leader, the Chief Justice, and the Speaker of the House decided on which, which... a delegate or selector of votes would be the right one. And then he was like, and then we had Jim Crow. And then he was like, that's not the experience we want to go back to. But I thought it was interesting that, that Lindsey Graham felt the need to get out there, basically, and directly tie this to Jim Crow. Tie this to, you know, white terror. And then somehow position himself as actually part of the new South, right? The kind of new South where my colleague is an African-American and I'm perfectly cool with it. Yeah, I mean, they love Tim Scott. All my Republican friends are always trying to tell me how great of a person he is and blah, blah. I don't know. It's like, what do you want me to do? You're trying to maybe say something negative about a black man? Like, get miss, miss me with this right now. <laughs> you know? That's all I can say about that. They do like Tim Scott a lot. <laughs> it's like, are you baiting I me? I heard he's actually a very nice guy. Suppose he's given a lot of money to, you know, directed a lot of money to African-American small businesses, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things, you know, we talk about politics a lot, where in South Carolina, it might not be too much difference between some parts of those parties anyway. So sometimes you got to go with the infrastructure that's willing to give you a seat. And so the Republicans gave him a seat and we're like, we'll ride with you. And so, you know, I mean, he's getting, he keeps getting reelected. So, that, you know, his constituency seems to be happy with him. So, so. Yeah, yeah, I think his constituency is pretty happy with him. I heard the black business class in South Carolina kind of likes him. But I feel like also people like Graham are like, our system in South Carolina is working just fine. We're not about this whole little revolution thing that you guys think you're trying to have here. I mean, maybe Graham is like, I don't really want to burn down the Senate. I guess the Senate is is his whole life. 
Yeah, I don't think he wants to burn down the Senate. I mean, he definitely had presidential aspirations too. He's he sat up on the stage a few times. He, uh, I don't know. He's just a, such a bottom feeder. I don't want to talk about Lindsey Graham anymore. What else are we talking about? <laughs> you're like, you're like Lindsey's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth this much time. He's getting too much airtime. Next, getting getting too far uh, into the weeds. Whoa! I know. I want to talk about. What's going on with Bitcoin? Can we talk about that for like 10 seconds? Because, I mean, you can't see the smile Everyone on my face, right? Everyone's telling me about the Bitcoin. You can't see the smile on my face right now, but you know who's a happy individual right now is me. That's <laughs> all I'll say about that. I know. I, I got clowned by my, uh, let's just say, but my, my friends have been calling me off the hook being like, the Bitcoin is going through the roof. Why aren't you in on the on the madness? I mean, it, to be fair, if you were invested, I think last year was a pretty good year. Like, people have been making a lot of money. It was a great year. It's gone through the roof. The Bitcoin is flying. The stock market doesn't seem to care that everybody's dying. It seems to it's actually do strange. better with the fact that everyone's dying. <laughs> like, it's very strange. The stock market is really happy that everyone's dying. This is the best year of stock performance I've ever seen, personally. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's hilarious that Trump was able to lose the election while the stock market was going gangbuster. And then, traditionally... Because he didn't get right? people that don't have stocks $2,000. He knows why he lost. That's why he's so mad at Mitch McConnell right now. <laughs> he's, he's like, uh, you have to remember, most people don't have any stocks. And so they, they don't see any of that. For them, it's like just some weird number, you know? Good for you. I guess you know, for most people, it's actually annoying, right? Because it's making their cost of life go up. Yeah, and, and we're not even giving them a federal dividend, which is basically what the $2,000 would be if you want to look at it that way. Because they're going to tax us for all this money, right? Once you pull it out and use it. And so people should be getting some dividend as a share of that. But that's why, you've, you know, that's why I'm progressive, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're for a kinder, gentler capitalism. But yeah, why exactly. do you think Bitcoin is going through the roof? I mean, do you think Gold. it's counter the dollar? Gold. So people are using it um, it's doing way better as an alternative to gold investment. Correct. Correct. But if not exactly. So I was reading something earlier that your boys at JP Morgan put out. And they were saying um, that if it keeps tracking the way it is with respect to gold, it'll probably by the end of this year be somewhere around 125 to 150,000 per Bitcoin. Yeah, I saw JP Morgan put out this number of like 146 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, correct, correct. And they advocate, they actually advocate for something that I agree with very strongly, that it's probably time for Bitcoin to split again. Mm. I, I mean, I've long thought that actually a super high rise in the value of Bitcoin kind of diminishes in some levels its utility. After nah, I mean, not really, because you can just buy pieces of Bitcoin just like you can buy a whole Bitcoin. That's completely simple. Mm -hmm. You can buy 0 0.0001 Bitcoin like it's nothing. I mean, like, do you think it's a counter hedge against uh, inflation? I don't know if people because are thinking... Because gold would be you yes. know, a hedge against inflation, right? Correct. Or a hedge against... Not, let's not even call it deflation. Uh, a hedge against debasement of the currency, a fiat currency. I mean, are we seeing something similar with Bitcoin or... Are we seeing people basically saying that they don't think there's any other assets? Like, there's no actual investment opportunities in the real economy. Like, why do we think that Bitcoin is flying up? 
Well, I think it's two things. I think one is, like you were saying, it, people are using it as a hedge, you know, against inflation, you know, similar to gold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm just yeah, letting like, like, that sound pass. That's all. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah. I guess some some ways it's a hedge against inflation, and then... It's a and weird then moment, the, right? I mean, and then also the the U.S. dollar index is steadily falling. So that's another major contributing factor, I'd say. Just the fact that the the use of the dollar in foreign exchange markets is going down, and so the demand for Bitcoin as an alternative is going up. You know, and we already yeah. know that the largest region for Bitcoin investment is Asia, and so that kind of makes sense. Trump did some things that I think. And this is one of you know this is one of our big themes talking. We've been looking at the kind of U.S.-China relationship all year, but I I have lo- I mean I agree with you, and I think maybe I underestimated the extent to which the rise in Bitcoin is also tied some of the interesting moves that have been happening lately, right? I mean, we decided to finally remove after more than twenty years. Uh, the four Chinese state-owned telecom companies from the New York Stock Exchange. You know, there's this pressure to sort of regulate what types of Chinese companies will be able to make IPOs in American markets, their access to capital markets. And in doing those kind of things, I suppose, in some ways, right, even if only at the margins, you are diminishing some of the utility of the dollar. Or yeah. its role in some of those markets, and then where does current where does money go? Especially with the renminbi still not being fully convertible. Yes. So you think that's actually the big driver? Is actually there's this leakage coming out of particularly Asia that is not finding the dollar. Well, you saw the Chinese also decided to change the uh, valuation base for the renminbi. They said that they were going to decrease the extent to which it tracks the dollar, and they're going to increase. They're going to try to increase it to a wider basket of currencies, of which I suppose the time is only coming to when they say something like, "Actually, we're going to let it track partially Bitcoin as well." I guess if that ever happens, it's going to go fucking gangbusters. Well, so the other thing with Bitcoin too, I guess that. So Bitcoin's always very closely followed its stock to flow ratio, like mm. its growth has been always very closely associated with that. Mm. And so the, the rising inflation and the plurality, there's so many dollars around thanks to the stimulus and all the stuff that happened during COVID that it's also affecting the price because every, every time I think it's 200,000 blocks of Bitcoin or mine or something like that. It has to go through something called halving, all right? And then when the halving process happens, the amount of reward you get for mining a Bitcoin is reduced in half, Mm -hmm. like a a, very similar to a split, right? And so that's kind Mm -hmm. of inherent inflation built Mm -hmm. into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Each time that happens, you're going to face a bull market and Bitcoin tends to destroy all previous records mm-hmm. that you've seen. So like in like November 2012, it went from like $12 to like $1,200 as a result mm-hmm. of the ha- of the halving. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's another effect that you're seeing just as a result of more people joining the network. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. And the having process. Yeah, so you're saying there's there's internal dynamics that's driving the price of Bitcoin. And then there's external factors that are accentuating the price drives. Correct. 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 And so the two of those things together, like just are making it go gangbusters. Gangbusters out here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very, it's a very interesting moment I think that we're in right now. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's really interesting, the internal and external dynamics pushing Bitcoin further. And I mean, I think we're also seeing a big maturity in the uh, blockchain, you know, in blockchain as an investment class. I mean, even the idea that you can have your Robinhood account or your Cash App account now be a wallet, you know, some of it is diminishing maybe some of the problems we used to have earlier where people stealing wallets and things like that or losing your blockchain or your Bitcoin or having to build out your own system. Yeah, and I guess the fact let's that not talk JP about that. Morgan, <laughs> I guess the fact that JP Morgan is also dealing with it now, right, is, is talking about it as an asset class means that there's also an expectation, right, that tons of portfolio investors are increasingly going to come into things like blockchains and other coins. I mean, the other question, though, is what do you make of all this proliferation of coins out here? I mean, there have been a ton of ICOs in the last year or two. And so do you see Bitcoin I mean, it's Bitcoin a new gold rush. The most established of many? Or, I mean, do you see things like Ethereum like playing in this market as well? So I think there's going to be room for multiple coins, first of all. That's definitely true. Um, that are going to fill different niches. I think that's one of the, the easiest way to see it. And that's why Ethereum has put a lot of work into their their whole infrastructure and like being integratable and their software is like super good. So that... They, I think they want to be the one that's kind of like the everyday, you know, uh, digital exchange currency. It's, it seems like they're setting themselves up a little bit more for that. Whereas Bitcoin, like I, I, I think you'll get like usable Ethereum ATMs before you'll get usable. Bit- I mean, there technically are Bitcoin ATMs, but they're like we've discussed. It's like going to the strip club using ATM. It's going to charge you like 30 to 50 percent. It's like crazy, like nuts, like minimum five, minimum five thousand dollars. It's like what? It's like going to the gold, you know, like, you know, you go to the hood and you see those community, those shops, or not even the hood. Like, even if you go to Vegas, you see shops that say, we buy gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, you have to take in your gold and try to figure out with this dude behind the counter, what the, what the price of your gold is. Yeah. And for some reason, there's like four people per state that can do it. If you want to do it that way, it's super, super shady. Like people don't understand, like converting these coins to cash sometimes is is like the the scariest thing that you might do, especially as a nerd in your life. So the fact that you can trade these things on major exchanges is a huge deal. It really is. Mm-hmm. But so, I, mean, I, 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 know, I know people that have lost over a hundred bitcoins, for example, <laughs> and you know, it's because of the old system getting them locked in wallets and stuff like that, and all of that. I mean, I guess you could still do that if you're being a super paranoid. But there's no need to, is the point. You know? But now I think what things like, what Ethereum always wanted to do, I think, is to make it so, like, let's say you're living in a virtual environment and you want to make small exchanges inside, like, a virtual environment. I think Ethereum has always been trying to build this kind of thing up. Like, I want to buy my avatar a new dress. I want to pay for it in Ethereum. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think I think they're you know setting themselves up to be used at point of sale, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. Whereas I think Bitcoin, we're going to see turn into more of a like gold, like a store of value, right? Like an but maybe class, not like an asset like class or something Correct. like that, like Brent crude Correct. or whatever. Correct. As as maybe opposed we'll to being things. But the other thing that Bitcoin, I think, might be setting itself up for, which I think is actually even more concerning from a point of view, if you were, if you were concerned with American hegemony, I think one of the problems that is emerging is Bitcoin could also be increasingly a measure of value. And so, like, not a measure of value, what do you call it? Like an a invoicing currency. So one could imagine increasingly that trades are made based mm-hmm. on, yeah. you know, X Bitcoin, in which Bitcoin itself is not actually necessarily exchanged. But, you know, it's like, this is the invoicing currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, what's the term for that? Uh, yeah, invoicing currency. Because it's not reserve currency, because you don't really keep it in reserve. Mm-hmm. It's different, you know? Yeah, and I feel like that could also cause... Because one of the big things in America has going in its advantage has been, you know, the use of the dollar as the primary invoice all around the world. So, like, even if Iran wants to buy something from North Korea, two countries that you would think have no interest in using the dollar as their mediating or invoicing currency, they still usually do it in dollars. Yeah, I mean, the greatest, I say, achievements of uh, American imperialism is moving the invoicing currency to the dollar and changing the world lingua franca to English, you know? Mm. Um, and neither one of those yeah, things were true. I've been, I've been reading even these, uh, you know, I've been reading this Chinese sci-fi trilogy, uh, Remembrance of Earth Past, The Three-Body Problem, which supposedly is coming on as a Netflix show. Though, oh, nice. Though the, uh, oh, it's being made by the um, Game of Thrones producers. Oh, that's not nice. Oh, no, it's going to come out, I think, for HBO. But the Game of Thrones producers are, are doing it. Um, but I just finished volume two. And um, yeah, and then in the future, they're projecting like 100 years or 200 years into the future. Mandarin and English have become these interchangeable languages, right? Mandarin has all these English words and phrases in it. And then English has picked up some Mandarin. I mean, you know, because it's a Chinese point of view. But they're basically yeah. acknowledging this idea of a lingua franca. English's role as a lingua franca, you know, two, three hundred years into the future. Yeah, the concept of that's been around for a while. I think, I think the way I was always taught is the concept of Stark. I think that's from the Ender's Game uh, series that we, you know, we've read as kids. That uh, the English, like some evolved version of English that incorporates all the different languages will be the lingua franca and then the uh expanse trilogy or series i guess more than trilogy um they also do that but they also do some cool stuff where like some of the societies have like a patois as like their lingua franca because they're like had more minorities I mean, in their colony you know last last, so I think night kinda I cool. was, uh, last night i was watching um i don't know why i was watching interviews with bollywood stars you know, this younger generation of B-class Bollywood stars. And you can already see it, right? And, you know, the kind of, like, flirting between Urdu and Hindi and then into English and then, you know, in different languages. So, so it's kind of patois that people are speaking. 
the Bollywood patois. <laughs> it's actually kind of beautiful. Huh? It makes you wish that you spoke the language better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I think it's coming, right? I mean, it's out there already. But, but I think you know one of the things I think Trump and the people around Trump, because I don't even know if Trump was like sophisticated enough to think through some of these problems. I think in some ways their attempt to resurrect or, or I guess they called it strengthening American power, in many ways undermine certain core forms of American power, especially by making it like really visible. Like, like there was no need, I think, in some ways to like make everyone realize how vulnerable they were to being cut off from the U.S. financial system. Or did we really need to, to emphasize to the Chinese that they had these massive tech weaknesses and like sort of highlight exactly where they were and then make it politically um, imperative that they had to be addressed? And I think that's a legacy that Biden is going to have a really tricky, a tricky uh, dance to play in how he, how he addresses some of these concerns, right? Like, what is his role going to be with the rest of the world? And how is he going to fit his constituency, which I think you're right to point out, right? I mean, Biden is beholden now to... A, many people have been saying the progressive movement was defeated inside the Democratic Party, but... I think what we're seeing is that that wasn't necessarily true, right? That the progressive movement, the Bernie wing, might actually have more influence in the party and maybe has some weird crossovers with the Hawley wing, this new wing of the Republican Party that could be a relevant force, I think, going forward. No, I agree. I think um, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I do think in terms of the internal party power struggle, like the, the reins of the party, the progressives who look like they might be the largest single group in the Democratic Party are never going to, not at least soon, get to take the reins of that part of the party. Like they're not going to run the DNC, right? That That's that's pretty clear. But I think in the Senate, they're going to have a lot more power. Um, mm. I, think, I think that's also why, unfortunately, our boy from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, might become the most powerful senator in the country in some ways because he's going to you know slam his hands and stomp his feet at most of these progressive policies right I mean he's basically a dino in my opinion he's a d- democrat name only so he's playing the, he's been playing the dino role for some time I guess though what would be interesting is if Lisa Murkowski for instance uh, carries through her threat to leave and to join the democratic party because I guess she's the number one rhino right Sure, but I mean, she's a rhino in the sense that, I mean, if she comes over though, is that good? I'd rather she stay a Republican. I want to kick. I, I think I think Manchin should become a Republican. That's more what I'm saying. Like, let's get just get rid of him. Can we kick him out of the party? I don't want Murkowski in my fucking party. So you don't think Murkowski and Rob? She's not invited. Are coming over? No, she's not invited. I think they might be coming over. Well, then we need another party. I don't want to be at their party. You see what I'm saying? Uh... And I think that's the kind of problem we're gonna have. Like, sure, more rats are gonna try to jump from the ship. The quote-unquote reasonable Republicans, right? You so you're, not, you're not excited about the day that Lindsey Graham comes over to the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think that's when you know it's complete. I mean, I've been, <laughs> man, I've spent half this time complaining about my boy Bill Clinton. I mean, you know, you think I'm, I'm gonna be cool with this? Nah, no way. There's no way I can. Hmm. 
Lindsay and Bill. Well, Bill is a core part of the party, though, right? I mean, it used to be. They they wouldn't even let him come to any of the events this year. They don't I say his name. One of the one of the things that's been striking, and I think one of the biggest surprises for me, has been the icing out of core Obama people, like Michelle Flournoy. Uh, yeah, like where are these people are? Where are they now? Right, they're gone. Larry Summers didn't come back. Maybe some of the Clintonistas have been... Anne-Marie Slaughter, people thought she could be a Secretary of State. They've been iced out. Or at least iced out for a younger generation of people. What, what I've, from what I've heard, there was a very long line of people that Biden had promises to for you know his 40-something years. In, he's been in politics forever. And he had to make some priority decisions, right? And I think he made some decisions about what's going to go forward. Uh... And he was like, look, you guys already had a seat. And, you know, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Those are Obama's people. He might not like some of those people as much as people think. There's also that. I think he took in some of the Obama people. So I feel like he took in the core Obama people, but he left the people who used to be like, who I guess you would see as Hillarystas, the Clintonistas. A lot of Clintonistas didn't get seats. Maybe, it's, maybe their time in the party is over. Or maybe... Their sway isn't as strong as it used to be. I guess maybe maybe Obama is now the I guess Obama is now the former president, right? So if you weren't cool with Obama, then and she, and she is a two-time failed presidential candidate, Hillary. And so like, and she's not in politics anymore. She's not even a senator anymore. She didn't even try to go do that anymore. So what? How much, how much pull can she really have? <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, I guess that's true. But it is interesting to see the subtle generation change. I mean, I was really worried that Biden's presidency would mean that we would get no change. And I think I've been a little bit surprised that maybe... Maybe Biden is actually the end of a generation instead of, like, the prolonging of a of a, you know, a certain group in power. Maybe he is the bridge. It does seem like what he said he meant in earnest, which is that he, he only t- intends to do, well, I don't know about the one-term thing. We'll see about that. But that he, but he might mean that too, but that he intends to be the bridge between that part of the party, some of these Republicans that he thinks aren't so bad, and, you know, the guy he's now calling his best friend, Bernie Sanders. So... <laughs> I mean, I mean, he's, t- he's totally put Bernie under his wing somehow. I mean, there's this like totally a cool kid nerd thing going on there, right? I mean, I hate to say it. No, he's, <laughs> left, he's left your girl Warren out in the cold. Yeah, because no one likes her. <laughs> oh, that's true. And Clyburn is having the time of his life. I feel like Jim Clyburn is like, I've never been so powerful in my life. Well, I think he gets to make some uh, just ABC demands. And, like, he's been saying some pretty reasonable things, too. Like, he said the other day, impeach, why are we going to impeach? It's like a week till inauguration. Like, I don't feel like, I don't want to go over there to have to impeach him right now. This is stupid. The quickest way to get him out is, like, don't let these, don't let the Republicans talk about it, basically. Let's just go inaugurate our boy, and then it's over. Who cares? We won. Mm. Why play games? I kind of agree with him on that. recently saying that we should impeach. That it's just about the record. 
But, but I mean, I guess, how do you feel about the impeachment issue? So you think we should just let him, let the clock run out? Or do you think we should actually take a stand? I guess if he gets impeached, he, he can't run again. Why? People keep saying stupid stuff like that. If you get convicted by the Senate, you can't run again. That's not the same thing as being impeached. That's called removed from office. Yeah, removed from office. You can't run again. Yeah, I mean, how do I feel about it? I agree. I just said I agree with Clyburn. I don't think we should impeach. I think the quickest way to get him out is to uh, just inaugurate Biden and don't let them talk. If you impeach, then there's a debate on the floor, and then they, the Republicans get to go up and say all their crazy nonsense. Do you want to listen to that? They get to do their whole little thing again, where they're going to talk about how it wasn't a riot, and we were just trying to express ourselves, and yada, yada, yada. But I mean, I, yeah, I feel ambivalent about the impeachment or convicting, because I guess there's very little chance that we can convict in the Senate. And then I guess you have the other problem of is it, is it wasting time that could be spent, you know, moving the legislative agenda forward? Yeah, so that's my biggest hang up with, you know, starting an impeachment. But I guess if we could banish him from, if he could be convicted or removed from office, I would be kind of, for, I, I think I would support that. And also, hate to say it because I don't fully mean this because I, I do think this is an impeachable offense. Don't get me wrong. Let me just make this clear. It's not like I don't think that this is impeachable. It just after the way the Democrats handled that last impeachment it makes me nervous to see them do it again with such a short time. Like can you do we know? Can you remove someone from office after they've already left office? Oh, is that even like possible? Could, you could convict them. It just it doesn't make any sense. It seems like that is possible, but I don't know if... I think that would be even harder because I think then you would lose a few Republicans who maybe would do it for this. Mitch McConnell has said that they could do the trial after he's left office. So you can be tried in the Senate after you've left office. But... I agree with you. I don't think that's... I think that might be a non-starter, though. Like, I don't see... I don't see the Senate convicting you after you've left office. Convicting Trump after you've left office. Yeah, I don't see it really happening at all, to be honest, but... Eh. I mean, I guess the most convenient thing would be if the Republicans would put on their big boy pants and go over there and tell Trump that he needs to resign. But I guess that's a bit... I don't know if Trump would do that. Try to make a little last stand. I don't know if Trump has the integrity that Nixon had. Where he would do something like that. Trump's not going to resign. <laughs> you don't know. He definitely doesn't have the integrity Nixon had. He's not as smart as Nixon. He doesn't understand the system as well as Nixon. You know, Nixon had his problems, but Nixon was an actual politician. Like, he, he, knew, he knew his head from a hole... You know, his ass from a hole in the ground. Trump, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's true. So I think that's I think that's what makes it a little tough on this one, right? Like, what do you do in a situation like this? Maybe you just humiliate him. You make some Saturday Night Live jokes about the dude. 
try to stop talking about him as much as possible. And then big thing we didn't mention is he's been banned permanently from Twitter. What's up with oh, that? Yeah, they, and they're saying they're going to mean? create their own social network site. I mean, that's easy. That you could do that in a couple of days. I mean, that's not a hard, big deal. But but then he got he got banned symbolically from MySpace and Friendster too. <laughs> I mean, the big problem. It's like when Simon Schuster took their book contract away from Josh Hawley, right? Like, the big problem the Republicans also have, especially the wingnut version of the Republicans, is that their market is a lot smaller than the other market, right? Mm, like, if you're a company, why would you side with these wingnuts as some, if it's just about dollars and cents and you, like, grabbing market share? They can't really play the consumer game like that. Like, you don't want, like, to lose your followers or boycott, be boycotted because Trump is out there. And maybe they were going to block him a long time ago. They just didn't want to deal with the idea of blocking a president. But now he's getting a little impotent, right? I mean, he's coming to the end of his term. He's going to realize how much of his brand was him and how much was the presidency. I think that's what's really scary for Trump, right? Is Maybe you're right. The scariest thing for Trump would be if we just stopped talking about his ass. Drake said that one day. Drake said the scariest thing that can happen to you is they stop talking about you. Well, I think Trump always understood that. That's why he tried to dominate the media cycle the way he did with his nonsense, right? To keep it, keep it flowing, right? Whatever it was, he, he, would, he would create a new... You know, what today? As we always say, what's, what's mean, up today with Trump? I with my friends on the left who, who are like hyperventilating about the coup in some ways. It was bad, right? But, I mean, it was also reality TV, right? Like this dude who just, wants to win every yeah. news cycle was like, I don't want to have Georgia be the news cycle. I want to have Correct. me be the Correct. news cycle. Correct. He's like, I'm still not over this. There's a still another week or so, week and a half until I have to leave. And I and want I people want to know. about anything but me. Yeah, and I want yeah, I want people to know that I'm pissed off and I'm still in this bitch and that's what's up, you know. I'm in my and field. people are calling it a coup and it, but in the month, and and once again the reason it wasn't a coup is it wasn't him trying to say and and I'm staying, like you're saying they were playing funeral music they they were just lamenting the fact that they lost and and breaking some things on the way out. That's really yeah, what it was. They were throwing a temper tantrum. I understand that a lot of people are like, well, but he pressured someone before, and he did this, and he did that, and then he did this, so as a result, it must be a coup. Because, look, it's, you'd think if you're going to break into the, you know, into the chambers, you'd probably be orchestrating, your, like, it's probably a coup, right? Like, where else are you doing this violent break-in and all this? But that wasn't it. It was just a childhood party. It's very, <laughs> very strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a tipper tantrum. From some spoiled kids. Alright, I guess we shouldn't call them that. Some, some grown, heavily armed men were throwing a temper tantrum. Yeah, men. Grown-ass men. The most privileged men in the country decided to go out there and throw a temper tantrum. And, like... I guess the question is, what do we do now? Like... What if you were in the hypothetical where you have some people in your social circle who stay to the end, right? Some, nev- some always Trumpers, not never Trumpers, always Trumpers. Do you talk to them again? 
Do you bring them? I mean, I cookout? do you, you know me. I so the thing about me and these people is I uh, I've always spoken to them because I'm not like that academic side of me is like you know I have to hear all ideas even though if I know they're you know not directly <laughs> attacking me or bullshit I'm willing to hear them out to some extent. It's good to know where the opponent is. But they were never invited to the cookout. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. They so can't you're come saying to the, the cookout, cookout is a bridge too far. <laughs> they can't come to the cookout. So you're saying you can meet them maybe in the street, but you can't forget that, you know, the boys were in there trying to do things like the Muslim ban. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I've been having this domestic argument, like, do you do you just sort of pretend that things have gone back to normal, or do you just do you try to reintegrate, or do you uh, or do you try to keep it at arm's length? You have someone in your uh, dinner parties that's. Uh... I mean, I've been surprised <laughs> how many people I had in my dinner parties in the past who stayed until the very end. Sometimes you're surprised by the people who, like, were diehards. But do you bring them back, or do you just... Or is, it, is it something that you can't really forget? Like, this wasn't normal politics, right? This wasn't like you served in the Mitt Romney administration. This is kind of like... You really went for it. I mean, they're still here, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know what letting them back... Like, are we just going to pretend they don't exist? I mean, I don't know. I think there has to be, to some extent, you have to find a way, if you want to see this as, you know, Islamic extremists, you know, like those kind of people that, like, you know, the people that, you're treating this like people that left for, it left England to go join ISIS and came back, right? Like, do we let them back into society or what do we do now, right? I guess it's, it's kind of similar. And I, I guess I'm saying, like, I mean, they're here, so I guess we have to try to talk them off the cliff. I mean, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I feel like and we've been talking a lot about this, and I know we gotta we gotta wrap up soon. But I've been feeling like the ISIS comparison isn't as crazy as we might want to make it sound, right? Like a lot of people have self-radicalized themselves. Hundred percent. And they're our friends. I mean, they're not our. I mean, you're right. They're people. They're right here, right? They're 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 in our like. We went to school with them. We like. They might be in our extended families and. How do you deal with people that have, like, gradually self-radicalized themselves into white nationalism? Especially when you see it, especially one, when they're not white. That's always the, the most interesting one. And then two, when you see them doing it to themselves actively. It's like, what the hell is going on, bro? You're, you're literally actively brainwashing yourself. Stop it. Like, stop. Why are you doing this? Hmm. Uh. So you're saying in some ways they're part of our society, so we have to basically try to treat them. Yes. Like, like you're not going to be able to like completely kick all of them out. So you basically have to try to hope that they can de-radicalize or work towards de-radicalizing them. And I guess that's part of why we have this pod to some extent, too, because let me just put it this way. Would you rather that they spoke to you sometimes or that they only spoke to other people that believe in the same thing they believe? Which one of these two things you think leads to better a better future for us all? I mean, come on. You can't have these nutters just talking to each other. Is that the prescription? Yeah, I guess that's true. Because when they talk to each other, you're like, wow, you guys, are, you guys are really out here playing, like, 
and it's a foreign language. They sell all this weird stuff that I have no idea. They have all they have these news cycles and issues that and people you never heard of. It's like who are these people? <laughs> they'll they'll know like the name. They they'll like all know the name of some random like house person's secretary and claim like she's part of some great conspiracy. And it's like you don't know about her. I'm like no, of course I don't, because no one knows about that. Like what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> Uh, that's true, dude. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, the level of madness. I think these are the issues. These are some of the other issues that I guess we're going to be dealing with for the next four years, or maybe, maybe unfortunately for the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah, it looks like it. But yeah, behind us. All right, yo. yo I got, well, I'm about to go. I'm about to go get my vaccine. Go get vaccinated. Are up. you getting it already? Stay vaccinated up. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to get, oh, go get snaps. my shot. I'm jealous. I feel like we're we're behind here in in LA. We're just yeah, we're just spreading to... virus. Yeah, I got the hook off. Holler if you hear me. <laughs> Holler. Holler, your boy. Well, you'll tell us next time. You tell us if you get the superpowers. I'll let you know. <laughs> All right, see you. Peace, player.